Welcome to another episode of Ed's Up, sponsored by the Southern Early Childhood Association. Ed's Up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them. Hosted by Dr. Melody Musgrove and Dr. Kathy Grace with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. Well, we are just delighted today for Ed's Up to have our as our guest, Becky Bailey. She is a renowned author, educator, and creator of Conscious Discipline. Welcome, Becky. We're so glad to have you today on Ed's Up. So glad to be here. It's nice to see people. Absolutely. I agree. Uh, we're just so happy that you are with us because I know that we have some listeners and we ourselves who have been following your work a long time and are just so appreciative of the work that you've done. And before we really start talking about your your work, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what life lessons growing up, we, we firmly believe that everybody's childhood has an impact on what they do later on. So what life lessons did you have growing up that led you to do what you do so beautifully today? You know, I, almost every one of them. I mean, because when you're talking about social-emotional, it's all about the relationships. So all the relationships impacted me. Some of the earliest ones were uh, uh, my father was in the Secret Service. And so we moved about every 18 months, very similar to the military. And all that moving moved me from school to school to school, making it difficult in my perception to reenter a school always trying to make new friends. And so this was kind of the basis of the school family. Because I thought if, you know, if we had a school family and you move from school family to school family, and one of the jobs of someone was your your automatic friend or your buddy the first day to kind of get you around and sit and eat lunch with you, it would have made a difference in my life. So, so that's one big event. And then I also, when I was in high school, I, I had a car accident and had a near-death experience. And so uh, I died there for a moment and came back. And it really allowed me to see how powerful it is if you see things differently. Because when I came back, I saw things significantly different than when I went into this experience. And it was, had such a profound effect on my life. I thought, well... It really comes back to changing our minds about a lot of things. And if we can change our mind, we don't have to struggle so much with our internal well-being. So I think those probably were the most significant ones. And then, of course, all my failures, I call them failures, in, in many relationships where when I became upset, I was not able to regulate myself as I had hoped I could. And a lot of that is not seeing the models or either everyone just seemed to act right or pretend they're right or go off into another room and come back right. But I never saw them how they got there. So uh, I think those three things kind of really aimed me in this direction. Wow. Very powerful experiences that definitely obviously shaped you. So what is it then that brought you to conscious discipline and Tell us about conscious discipline. How did you arrive at this and why it is so important for service providers and parents and teachers? Well, once I came back after my little near-death experience and I realized I was able to be a little more humble in how much I didn't know. 
And, and when I went to school, I had so many questions. And so I started trying to answer my own. I, I kept saying to myself, there's got to be a better way. And I would read and I would research and people would say global statements like, okay, after you make a relationship with the child, do these things. And I'm like, wait, wait, back up to that first sentence. Because some are easy to make relationships with and some kids just have been hurt. And they're not that easy to make the relationship with or build a nice community. And then it would go on for 400 pages of the book after that. And I'm like, wait, back up to that first sentence. So I think it all stacked up on me and it probably came into total focus for me, even though it's my life's work. I would say only to around 1996, 95, did it really become clear to me all the pieces because conscious discipline is a humongous comprehensive program that really, if we had to give a word to it, I would say a resiliency program a resiliency program for children, for adults, and actually for communities. And so it's really given us all that ability to set and achieve a goal despite life. So basically it's resiliency. Now, today it's really called social-emotional learning, self-regulation, executive function. I mean, there's so many titles we could throw onto it, but it's big in resiliency. And I think why it's catching on or why it has, because... Pretty much, we just answered the phone since we started 25 years ago and somehow got to 47 countries, so, which is, is amazing to me because I have no idea. With, I'm just a teacher. I'm not a business person. I'm not a marketer. I'm a teacher. And um, I think what it does is it uh, to meet the needs of children, we have to first meet the needs of adults. And if we don't meet the need, because they're the ones in charge of meeting the needs of kids. So if we don't do an adult first, if we don't address our own selves, if we don't help adults do those magic things like what happens when I'm upset, because I think personally we're all brilliant when we're calm. Every one of us, we're just brilliant as can be. It's when we're not calm that gets gets us, you know, and tangles us up. So uh, I think that's why people really appreciate it because it gives them enough resilience so they can offer it to children and it gives you exact skills of how to do it as opposed to just get it done. Well, you know, I share um, pieces of conscious discipline um, among, I share a number of effective strategies in my classes with my students in the university. And the thing that I try to really impress upon my students is that Punishment does not work, but yet that is the primary tool that so many teachers seem to have. And so giving them a positive way of dealing with not Mm -hmm. just, not just with the behavior, but of preserving the relationship with the child. And could you talk a little bit more about how you, what you saw in terms of the contrast of punishment and trying to shift that toward a positive strategy that will be more effective with children? Yeah, you know, that was a, that's been a long journey. And only in the last six or seven years have I seen uh, 25 years of kind of hard work paying off here where people have changed their mind a little more easily and more are willing to change their mind. We certainly are a a country that's in love with punishment, that's for sure. And I I think one of the things is is with conscious discipline, it's based in neuroscience. So all the research comes, well, not all of it. It comes from neuroscience, attachment, and a lot of development and 
education psychology. I mean, it comes from a lot of areas in the mental health area, too. But if you base things on neuroscience, you can just see that punishment will not blend well with education. I mean, so you can't keep them in the lower centers of their brain and expect the higher centers to function. So as simple as that might say, it still is a hard mindset shift for people. Now, I think the realization lately that we have kids with trauma, all of our insights now help because we can now say, well, if this happened to you, obviously your behavior is going to be slightly off. So that's helping us leave uh, our love affair alone and shift from this punishment to just teaching them, just like we would teach reading. So, I mean, if a child is missing a skill, and the thing that gets me is most other self, not not all, but a lot of social-emotional learning programs that are coming out now because it's kind of popular are programs to the child. They skip the adult and... It's amazing to me that we think that we can skip the adult and teach the child something, then turn around the next day and punish them for something they just did incorrectly. Uh, So this idea that we're missing skills, whether they're social, emotional or academic or physical skills, isn't a new idea, but it's, it's now getting more and more traction, that's for sure. Yes, indeed. And you just, you mentioned trauma. And I know that your methods and materials are trauma-informed and evidence-based. Would you talk about why that's so important? Why, yes, your approach and your materials are trauma-informed and evidence-based. I think it's significant, one, that we, we have a strong foundation on which to leap off of for our, our creation of what we would call strategies or interventions. And the strongest base I know for me is two-pronged. Mental health, which to me also in, involves kind of a, a soul growth process in there, but the mental health, being who you are meant to be, and then uh, neuroscience. So the neuroscience has, of course, the strongest science behind it. So founding things in neuroscience and then being able to leap off that pad into application I think has been probably the best thing that I could have offered because a lot of people can get with neuroscience and then they're stuck on the science of it. So what does that mean for today? What does that mean when the child's spitting at you? What does that mean when they're hitting another? What does that mean when they're breaking down into emotional meltdown because they're staying at home in quarantine? What does all that mean? But then leaping off that into making a thing. Okay, so this is what it means. Now here's what we need to do. So I think that's what makes it so significant that we base things in science. We base things in also, I mean, we don't want to forget our common sense, common sense and science. And we can not only prove it in a controlled study, but when you hear it, you go, well, duh. Yeah, that makes sense. I can recognize that in my own life. So it's making sense of science with personal experience so that people will buy in to make a change, to be willing to let go of this punishment and move it to a teaching arena. It's helpful for every child. It's essential, critical for children of trauma because then we just end up re-traumatizing a child who's already traumatized. Well, and we know there are a lot of things out there that that are being practiced that don't really work. And that's the thing about the evidence 
behind Copeland is yes. um, we, we know it works and we have the evidence to prove it through, you know, scientific research that shows that, that it's effective. And for instance, um, you know, suspension and expulsion, those are still very common practices in schools, yet there's zero evidence that they work. So why don't yes. we use strategies that we know are going to work and then benefit the child more later on as we build skills that they're going to need to be successful later on. And, you know, and that speaks so much, Melly, to the change that's needed. It's a mindset change. And the difficulty of a mindset, the transformation of seeing things differently, it cannot be dictated or coerced. You can only encourage and inspire and hope that people follow along and go, oh, yes, but you can't force them to change their mind. And I think that is what slows us down from making science into policy and policy into practice. You know, I um, I see it already in some of my pre-service um, teachers that I work with in the university, and I have them watch a documentary film about a young woman with emotional disturbance and how the school uh, used positive strategies to help her, and it shows her having a few meltdowns, and so I have the students react to that, that scenario, uh, and Every semester, I have students who say, yeah, the school, they should never have put up with that. The students are supposed to respect the teachers, and they should just, she, she should be kicked out of school. And you think, but you're throwing her life away. We yeah. are the adults. Yeah, this is about what the adults do to set the, the environment so that the child has the greatest likelihood of being, of being successful. And so we, I mean, even, you know, in these pre-service teachers, I see they have grown up with that, you know, punishment and that, you know, we're going to demand what we want from children and they're going to respond. And we just know that that doesn't, doesn't work. And especially yeah, your materials, your, your strategies are not just for kids with disabilities, especially of course, is my background. And we know that these strategies are especially important for children who, as you said, have trauma and children who have disabilities that we can almost predict there are going to be some behavioral issues with some children. So why not be ready with positive strategies. There's always some that just can't seem to get over that hump. And despite all information, despite everything, despite their own life, it's kind of like, I'll see it often with people saying, okay, I can show them all these examples, real life, right in front of you, just like you said, here's the story of success. Okay, it only works for that one. You know, so if that one was four-year-olds, then they say, well, it won't work with a six-year-old. If that six-year-old had autism, then it won't work with a neurotypical child. You know, it's like there's always these exceptions. This is not a rule for all of us. This is you're showing me the exception, not the rule. And it's amazing. But we're getting there. We're getting there. Becky, if you were advising parents of young children or basically homeschooling now due to the quarantine from coronavirus. What are three things that you would like for them to know that would help both the parent and the child make a smoother transition for parent to teacher and then back to being the parent again when we are back in school? I would like to say to all parents, you don't need to do it like it's done in school. You're not changing from a parent to a teacher, really. You're changing from a parent who's helping their child learn. And I think sometimes parents want to, whether it's online that they're receiving information or whatever, they want to try to emulate or be like the teacher. 
when we have so much at home that we've always been teaching our kids, whether you're going through a recipe, whether you're doing, I mean, there's math, there's language, there's everything in the home. And when we try to make it into a sequenced lesson, I think that trips up parents and, and they don't know the line. How much should I shove down their throat and when should I stop or how much should they focus on this? And they don't know how much is too much and how much is not enough. So I would say, keep in mind the content we want them to know. We had great example here in Florida, I mean, because we have orange trees. And so a, a parent was calling me in a disaster about some math lesson she got online. And I said, go outside and, get, and, and just get some boxes and you're going to put the oranges in them. And your task, though, is to be of service. So you're going to, you can't eat all these oranges on your tree. Take oranges into boxes and you're going to go around and set them outside each person's home and be of service. So that way you're doing a kind act, but you're going to have to count those and you're going to graph them and you're going to write about it. And you're going to do all this about this little orange adventure. And uh, it's going to be way more powerful than those two worksheets you got online that you can't seem to get them to learn. So I definitely would say stay in your wheelhouse because you're good at it. Parents really should not, they shouldn't beat themselves up, right? I mean, you, you, you're not, you're not taking the place of the school. You're not taking the place of the teacher that, that really talk to their children is, you know, one thing is just, you know, using language and growing. Yes. And, 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 and the amazing thing is, is many of us are home. If we have a home, there's a lot gone to a horrible place, but I know that they're missing the resources that many of us have. I understand that, but it still gives us time with our child. So I think that pressure of trying to be the teacher, you need to ease up on yourself, be gentle. I think the most important thing, especially of a four-year-old, what can you do that the schools don't allow much anymore? Play. You want to develop that brain because what's happened is brain development has not changed. It still requires some basic things. What's changed is the world around it. And school actually disregarded some of that brain development in its formation of some things. So play. Uh, many opportunities you can get your child to play. And if you have more than one, if you can play together, you're going to have to deal with the conflicts, but play together. And I think the last one is to have a routine so that you just don't stay up later than you always have, get up later than you always have, and kind of float through the day. Just have a basic routine. This is breakfast. This is school time, this is outside time, or you could call it learning time, so we don't end up playing school like many of us did when we were little, which was kind of brutal. So we can have school time, learning time, outside time, play time. I think that we're pressure parents are putting on themselves, the fear that their child is going to lag behind, the fear that their child is not going to somehow get in college in 20 years, is, or whatever it is, is gagging us. I think we just need to do what we do naturally and learn to read and write and do all those things in a very natural way. Yeah, I think that's great advice. You know, we have a four-year-old, too, and we find ourselves spending much more time out than I think he did whenever he was in preschool, and which that's a good thing. And um, 
findings that we can use nature as a great platform for learning. And so hopefully I know not all parents have are in places where they can spend a lot of time outdoors. I hope though that they can find ways to get some fresh air and to play. I, I know that the, the challenges of being in urban areas are different from those in rural areas and we're sensitive to that. So just I hope that they are able to find some ways to be able to connect with nature. I think that is very therapeutic during a time like this. Now, you have a ton, I mean, really right from the get-go, you guys just jumped right out of the gate and started making resources available right from the very beginning of this crisis. And you have a lot of things that are available for free during this time when everyone's kind of trying to figure out how to most effectively work with their children at home. So what do you hope that parents and and others can can do or how can they seize this opportunity to use your resources? Well, certainly I'm I'm happy that you mentioned that. So uh, just let them know that they're there. You know, it's ConsciousDiscipline.com and they're all free. And we've sent out to some of the best and brightest teachers and our certified instructors, and, and they're making these wonderful resources. And a lot of them are parents themselves. So they ended up in the same ball of mess as everyone did. So they're creating resources for themselves and sharing it with others. And I, I, I encourage people to go up. And some of those social stories are the little books. You just print them if you have a printer You just print them and and, and just read those over and over again or let your child read them to you. I encourage people to do that. And and as I said before, I think we're in a special situation now because if the adult's needs aren't met, there's no way possible they can meet the needs of their children. So right now, I think the greatest need of all time might not be the parent-child relationship, which is always phenomenal. That's always the baseline, but we need adults helping other adults with whatever resources we can. So we have people who are making food for those who need, you know, any adult who can help another adult get their needs made, get their lights on, get something in that house for that child that they might not can get. Anything we can do for each other is going to get us through this virus with more optimal results then your child might not be know all your numbers and letters and words, sight words for first grade. So or, or kindergarten, I think that's where our focus needs to be helping those who have less resources than we give them the resources and then just kind of all wish each other well and do the best we can. Well, you have, you know, you've done a lot of writing and publishing and you have a lot of great great books but and materials but one of my favorites is I Love You Rituals. It's one of our favorites around this household and would you mind talking about that, about I Love You Rituals? Yeah, so everyone can do these and, and, and they're, they're nothing really fancy. I mean, because we've all played little games with our children, especially, but mostly with babies. You know, as they get up into the three and four, we tend not to be as face-to-face in playing our games, we kind of play side to side more, you know, so we move into that parallel play or we watch something together or we take a walk side by side, which are all wonderful things. But if we're going to develop the brain, we need to turn face to face. So there's four ingredients to an I love you ritual. And so whoever's listening can make up anything on earth, but we want to do these four things. We want to look at them face to face, make some eye contact. 
we want to have some touch in there, whether it's just a knuckle bump or elbow touch or high fives or anything you want or just a big old giant hug. We want to be very present with them. We want to take this one minute, two minute, three minute time and not think about how we're going to pay the bill or what we're going to cook for dinner. And then we want to be very, very playful. The goal is to look face to face and just giggle. And that allows our brain to be in the most neuroplastic state. In other words, most willing to open up our heart and our minds and our life for learning. And so I think those are critical. So if you take those four ingredients, eye contact, touch, presence in a playful situation and make up anything simple as we could be Peter, Peter, pumpkin eater, had a friend she loved to greet and just shake hands, treated her with kind respect and in the morning hugged her neck. It's simple, but you can make up anything, a basketball or any kind of game, anything we can think of at all ages. We got all the Spanish, not all, but many Spanish-speaking countries, whether it's Colombia, Ecuador, uh, Puerto Rico, and we took their basic nursery rhymes, which were mostly a lot of them about spiders getting you and all this stuff is going to get you. And so we got the people of those countries to, to translate those into a more positive message and add the eye contact and touch. So for all those out there that speak Spanish, There's plenty of resources. We just got to flip them. So most of us did them when we were little. They were a little on the rough side. I remember my mom, uh, you know, just a simple one. uh, Night, night, don't let the bed bugs bite. Exactly. I still have a bed bug issue, man. I'm like, I'm not staying in that hotel. There's bed bugs. That's right. Fortunately, there uh, today there are a lot more things on television that are more developmentally appropriate and are you know are building on skills and knowledge than there were when we were growing up. There was absolutely nothing. So, then, but I guess that speaks to our age too. But <laughs> <laughs> was there anything else, Becky, that you would like to share about conscious discipline or any of the just kind of incredible resources that you have available that you'd mm-hmm. like for our listeners to know? I think one thing that's important uh, that I have to remind myself of, and, and, and I'll just remind everyone, is that is our state, our inner state, dictates the state of our youngest children. So that would be youngest up like zero to six. They, they cannot really, they haven't learned how to regulate their own feelings and, and manage their thoughts as well as some of us have, hopefully. But our state dictates their state. So when we're, when we're anxious, they're anxious. When we're angry, they're angry. And a lot of people have trouble kind of really believing that. But I always use the example of a dog. You're, if you have a dog or ever had a pet, they tend to know when you're upset. So certainly our young kids are way more progressed than a dog. And they know what's going on. And, and our, our sense of wanting to pretend it's not or, or pretend everything's okay when it's not, that doesn't help either. So we have to honestly work on this power of acceptance. It is what it is. And right now I do feel a little anxious. And it's not your job as a child to, to, to make me less anxious. I just want you to know I'm anxious and I'm handling it and watch what I do to manage it. Just watch me manage my anxiety. And that'll show you how to do with yours. So I think really remembering the television is scary. The world's a little anxious it puts our brain into a different kind of state and that our prediction of horribleness or our prediction that we're invincible is not going to help us. 
there's a lot of uncertainty out there and we have to live consciously in the uncertainty which exists. And we can do it. Uh, we can do it. And I think a lot of parents want to protect their children. They're like, I don't want my child to know that I'm worried about this or that I am anxious, but I think it's important for us to share that. I mean, they sense it anyway. And so it's important to share that with them and talk it through, like you said, so they can, we can model for them. How do you get through this? How do we get through difficult times and, and come out stronger on the other side? And I think people don't realize that it's essential for children that our nonverbal, our facial expression, our verbal, the words that come out, and this energy that kind of comes off, this felt sense that comes off of us, they all have to match. You know, so I think everybody in the world has heard this, you know, I love you, go play. But, you know, that's a little bit of a contradiction And with children, especially young children, that's early ones, the zero to seven, zero to eight, when those things don't match, all they can do is stop trusting their inner selves. And if you stop trusting your inner selves when you're little, you're going to be thrown into the world of everything on the outside has to manage your inside. And that sets us up for addictions. That sets us up for obsessive compulsive relationships that sets us up to to be a shopaholic or an eataholic. We're trying to find something outside of us all our lives to manage the inside sensations we don't know how to tolerate. Yeah, you know, one of the things I really try to help students see in my classes is that, you know, if you look at behavior as communication rather than this is a child trying to you know, be willfully disobedient or, you know, have that kind of punishment mindset. If you can look at what is the child trying to get and get away from, it transforms the way you see childhood behavior. You know, if you think of it as what are they trying to communicate to me? They're not, I mean, we, what we know now about young children is that it is not their desire to outdo us or to try to, or to try to make us angry that they're doing the best they can do in that moment. And they haven't yet developed, their brain is not developed enough to be able to, to say, I know I'm doing something wrong, but I can't stop myself. And so we can teach those skills. Indeed, and I think that that then starts off to when they get older, you know, that notion, you should know better by now, but no one ever taught me, you know, so it that would extend all behavior on any form by anybody as some form of communication, say, and at this moment, I can't access or have the skill set to manage this anger, but I truly did do the best I could at that moment, but that moment needs to be improved. And we can't do it till after those moments when we learn a new set of skills so that when those moments happen, we can hopefully access them. And I think that's uh, true, the truest for young children, the easiest to accept for young children. But maybe it's a little harder as we get older, and especially as we're parents and we're finding ourselves in struggles with our, our significant others. We're finding ourselves in power struggles and not being our best self with our children now, I think the biggest thing we can do is forgive ourselves and say, at that moment, that's all I had access to, but I'm going to practice and I'm going to get better at this and I'm going to handle it better these next moments. And that's the promise we can make for our kids. And that's called resilience. 
Yeah, that's amazing. We cannot control what other people do. We cannot make our children or the students that we teach do anything. We control what we do. And when we mess up, we should say we're sorry. Yeah. You know, we, I think parents and teachers think, no, we've got to be the authority and, you know, we can't ever be wrong. Well, no, we're all going to be wrong. Yes. And when we mess up, we just say we're sorry in the future. Well, what a tremendous pleasure it's been to have Dr. Becky Bailey with us here on Ed's Up today. Thank you, Becky. Thank you so much. And I'm glad you guys are doing these podcasts. All the help we can get. We're all in this together. I think it's so appropriate for today's Lit Bits that we use some of Becky Bailey's I Love You Rituals. You know, many of our traditional nursery rhymes are actually very negative. And so she has taken those nursery rhymes and turned them into positive, encouraging, nurturing ways to connect with our children. You can go to her website, ConsciousDiscipline.com, or just Google I Love You Rituals, and you will see wonderful examples. Um, you're looking each other right in the eye. You use hand motions to connect with each other and touching each other. Um, and I'll just give you a couple of examples. For instance, um, the old nursery rhyme, The Woman Who Lived in a Shoe. And so here's what Becky Bailey has changed into a wonderful woman. You're looking each other in the eyes using hand motions. A wonderful woman lived in a shoe. She had so many children. She knew exactly what to do. She held them and rocked them and tucked them in bed. I love you. I love you is what she said. Another is the classic nursery rhyme with a little song, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And it doesn't matter if you're like me and you can't sing. These are just amazing ways to connect with your children. Again, look these up on the Internet and you'll see very, very sweet examples of people connecting with young children around this song. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, what a wonderful child you are. With big bright eyes and nice round cheeks, a talented person from head to feet. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, what a wonderful child you are. Those are I Love You Rituals from ConsciousDiscipline.com. That's our lit bit for today. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. We're always interested in stories about children and those who care for them. If you'd like to share your story, email us at edsup at olemiss.edu. Until next time, bye-bye. Ed's Up is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity.